Hello and welcome to the British Sitcom History Podcast. Uh, my name's Gareth and with me is Alan. Hello. And this week we are going to cover a classic of the 80s and 90s, Red Dwarf. But we're actually only going to cover the first two series. So a little bit like when we tackled Only Fools and Horses. There's so much, so much rich material It's too here. big. It's too big. So we decided we would break it down a little bit. So we're going to cover the first two series today. And I think this one definitely falls under, not just there's so much, it's such an expansive universe, the Red mm. Dwarf world, but also I feel like I've got a lot to say about it <laughs> because this yeah. one's really is from my childhood. This is the... Sure. I, just to sort of throw my cards out on the table immediately, mm. Red Dwarf is definitely up there as one of my favourite ever sitcoms. You know, oh, that okay. and, say, Porridge. It's 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 top three, at least. So uh, well, That's know. interesting, because I think it's one of my favourites, too. But I think that isn't a function of our age. I, I don't think mm-hmm. objectively you would say Red Dwarf was one of the top five sitcoms of all time, but subjectively, I'm not disagreeing with you. <laughs> I don't know. I think I could make <laughs> that's a good That's the case you're going to be making, is it? Certainly some of it. Well, just, we always start with our kind of personal recollections. I think... I'm not sure we've ever explicitly said this on the podcast before, but but we are brothers. I am your older brother. And I think that is relevant here particularly because I know that when Red Dwarf was on the television, I recorded them onto VHS tapes. And then when I moved out and went on to my later life, all those VHS tapes were inherited by you. That's right, yeah. I suspect part of your love for Red Dwarf is because I was uh, meticulous with my recording from the telly. Well, I'll tell you exactly what I inherited. Uh, well, I, what I remember. Series four and five of Red Dwarf uh-huh. and series three of Blackadder, which is also yeah. the one of Blackadder that I've watched the most. <laughs> so, yes, series four and five of Red Dwarf recorded off the telly on VHS. Mm. I watched it many, many times as a well, young child. I'll tell you what was interesting for me. In contrast to usual episodes where you watch all of the episodes and I just watch a handful of them, in this case, since we're only covering two series, I've watched all 12 episodes of those first two series as well mm. in the last week. I thought, well, I, you know, I'll know these inside out because I used, to, I used to have them on video. What I was surprised to find was that series one, I didn't know as well. I've certainly seen it before, but series two, I sort of knew every word of every episode. So I guess mm. that tells you which ones I'd recorded off the telly and which ones I hadn't. <laughs> there might be a more specific reason for that. Uh, which we'll get into later, but basically series one was not repeated for uh, for quite some years. Uh, okay. I'll, t- I'll go into that later, but well, that that might why. be why. But you you would have been the actual right age when this was around. Definitely. The first series, uh, February to March eighty eight, mm-hmm. and then the second series was later that year in September October eighty eight. Yeah. So you would have been twelve, thirteen. Yeah. Perfect age, and I think you know again a little bit like when we did Only Fools and Horses. I think Red Dwarf has a cult following that is, mm. is more than just sitcom fans and I think I again I'm right in the right demographic for that my experience with Red Dwarf is that I sort of aged out of it I know that it changed in later years uh, but I certainly changed as well so my affection mm. is certainly in the earlier the first half of the the production and so certainly in these first two series but let's not get too distracted about what came later let's focus on yes. these first two series otherwise <laughs> we could really get down the rabbit hole couldn't we but, I mean, Red Dwarf itself has a very long and storied history, not just in terms of what comes later and all the changes they made, but in terms of getting it on screen in the first place. 
Let's establish the writers first. Rob Grant and Doug Naylor were a writing partnership mm -hmm. uh, starting in the late 70s. And they wrote, uh, like so many times we've seen and things, uh, they were writing sketches for radio, yeah. basically, and, and a bit of telly and that sort of thing. Were they spitting image writers, if I remember? They that? were indeed, yes. Yeah, yes, yeah. they were big writers on spitting image. And one of the things they had was a radio for... A sketch show called Cliché, which then became Son of Cliché. Okay. And on that, there was a, a regular sketch called Dave Holland's Space Cadet. Right. And it was about a man who was kind of lost in space and is the last human being alive. Interesting. And you can you can get those like they're 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 available to to listen to quite easily. And there's about five sketches. And there are some gags in there that you get in Red Dwarf. One of the sketches, like the entire sketch, is. The computer, which I think is called Hab in these sketches, mm -hmm. it's just Dave Hollins and Hab. And the computer yeah. is telling him that um, there's a ship chasing them from the Norweb Federation and this whole gag about him leaving about a light him. on. Yeah, he left his light on and there's a big electricity bill to pay. Not only that, Dave, you also left £57.50 in your bank account. A compound interest on that now means you own 98% of all the world's wealth. And because you've hoarded it all for seven trillion years, nobody's got any money except for you and Norweb. Well, why Norweb? You left a light on in the bathroom. In When they do that in Red Dwarf, it's a gag that Holly's playing. Sure, yeah. So in that sense, they weren't quite as connected to like a sense of reality. This What was a sketch had to become a practical joke, you know. So that's the basic starting point for what became Red Dwarf. And obviously things changed quite considerably, but they obviously had that idea and they were like, okay, let's see what we can do with that. And they actually wrote a pilot script for the show in 1983. So five years mm -hmm. before it, it was made. And they submitted it to the BBC and it was rejected. And then they just submitted it again and it was rejected, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. But I think they got good feedback, but it was just a kind of like, yeah, this isn't going to happen. Sci-fi doesn't sell. Um, it's too expensive. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's it kind of, it, it just wasn't going to happen. And it seems like what the breakthrough was is what they actually managed to get it commissioned by BBC Northwest. Yeah. The impression I got just from a few interviews and things that BBC Northwest, the commission editors there, they kind of decided, look, we need to compete with London. So we need to go for something different. We can't just try and churn yeah. out something middle of the road. We've yeah. got to go big. And if we sure. fall, we fall big. Fair enough. But let's go for something a little bit different. I guess the idea is that you can't you can't put on a, a chat show like Wogan, which was you know prime time, and 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 compete with that. You're going to be eighty percent as good at best, and that's no good. Yeah, you need to do something completely different and do it well. That was I get I think that was the basic idea, and it could have obviously blown up in their faces, but yeah. the, the 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 script was solid enough that they sort of felt it was worth the gamble. And you, we've got to mention Paul Jackson here, who was the executive producer behind mm -hmm. this, and. Paul, ja we're going to have to do a kind of focus on Paul Jackson at some point, probably when we do the young ones, because that's kind of mm, where okay. he kind of really made his name. Uh, but he was a producer and it was him pushing for this. And in fact, it was him who secured the budget because the year before they'd made Happy Families up yeah. in Manchester, Ben Elton's Happy Families, Paul Jackson With produced that. And so automatically the way that worked in those days was you do a series. And so when they're working out next year's budget, they would just allocate money for that next series of that. Okay. Now, they weren't going to do another series, but there was this money allocated to Paul Jackson project with Ben Elton. I see. And so Paul Jackson just 
took that and said, right, I've got a different project. Here we go. And so that that was that was how it came about. So I didn't know. So it was made, produced in Manchester. That's correct. Yes, I didn't know that. That's interesting. I've read over the years that they always sort of felt like outsiders. They didn't feel like part of the BBC establishment mm. as, as, a, as a production team. But, but that partly explains why. This is obviously before the days of, uh, you know, BBC News and BBC Sport all being in Manchester. I guess yeah, they were yeah. geographically out on a limb. They did move down to Shepparton eventually, but that would have been, I think, probably Series 7 when they expanded the uh, mm. the size of the sets and stuff. But uh, yeah, at that time, it was all filmed in Manchester. So the problem was all the cast lived in London and they rehearsed in London at the BBC's rehearsal space in Acton. Yeah. Uh, so they would rehearse through the week and then fly up to Manchester uh, okay. for Saturday, Sunday for the filming block for like dress rehearsal and film. Okay. Uh, well, they did. They flew at first until Craig Charles and Danny John Jules missed one of the planes. And so <laughs> they had to get a coach every week <laughs> after that as punishment. Uh, so that's your basic origin story there. And because they'd had so much time to get rejected and rejected over and over, the writers had really pulled it together and, and created a, a bigger world that they, they kind of knew what they wanted to do with it by that yeah. point. That's interesting to me, Alan, because I think one of the things that marks Red Dwarf out as fairly special is that it does have, it sort of has a backstory, has a wider universe. It has, it has some really interesting big ideas that they tackle mm. and you know the, i guess we're going to talk about the other media they've written novels and there's an expanded universe what's interesting to me is it started as a couple of sketches if you told me this was adapted from a sci-fi novel or a series of sci-fi novels i would believe that but it was adapted from a norweb gag that's really interesting yes <laughs> well even that i mean the character in those sketches is nothing like lister it's a it's a very different thing but I think there's a reason for that as well. And I'll, I'll get into that when we start talking about the cast. Mm. Because I think we, we've said so many times that the secret to a really strong sitcom is writing and casting. Like that seems to be the real things you need to get right. Yeah. And I think where Red Dwarf really succeeds is that they, they didn't find the perfect cast for their script, but they made the script work for the cast they've got. Instead yes. of going, okay, this is the actor we've got, let's try and hammer him into a, into a round hole. Okay. They went, okay, well, this isn't really what we imagined, but we like what they're doing. How can we change that? And they started writing to the actors as soon okay. as possible, you know. Yeah, but they they also didn't they didn't get a pilot. They went straight to series, and so we'll see both in the fact that they did reshoot scenes for episode one, but also series one in general changes so much to series two, which mm. will then change so much to series three, and we'll we'll yeah. sort of talk about that to some extent. Let's rather than getting too bogged down in backstory because I think there's so much to tell. Let's get into our episode. Let's do that. So what we're gonna do is we're going to focus on Series 1, Episode 3, Balance of Power. And basically, this is the one where Lister wants to switch on Kachansky's hologram because he's lonely and he wants a girlfriend. Uh, mm. But that would mean turning off Rimmer's hologram and Rimmer doesn't trust him. That's the that's yeah. the, the gist of the story. Should we outline what Red Dwarf is, if anybody's possibly listening to this and don't know the general concept? Uh, <laughs> make it quick. <laughs> <laughs> okay, basically, you know, Red Dwarf is the name of a spaceship. Dave Lister is one crew member on that ship and he is in stasis when there is a radiation leak. So everybody else dies and he is left in stasis for three million years until the radiation has dissipated. So then he's brought out. Yep. And of course, I mean, three million years away from Earth. Earth has 
the human human race is probably gone. And so the only people left are is this computer called Holly, who is slightly senile from just being running for three million years. Mm. A hologrammatic projection of another crew member named Arnold Rimmer, who he doesn't like, and a creature known as the cat, who is evolved from a cat <laughs> uh, into a sort of... Okay, so that's species. the setup. I'm going to cut you off because everybody knows this. But... <laughs> well, hopefully, yeah. But everybody knows this, so we're going to just say, yeah, everybody knows that. There's so much in that. There is so mm. much in there. The, the three million years, the stasis, that's the setup. The fact that we've got this hologram, and that's set up in the first episode before where we see the whole crew and the ship running as normal. We have someone who's died and brought back as a hologram. That's all set up, so we're expecting that. Mm. The evolution over three million years of this organism from Lister's pregnant cat, which is why he gets put into stasis. It's, it's mm. really great storytelling, really great ideas. So all those all four characters... We're all comfortable with those four characters. We know them. But I just love the origin story. It's really well constructed and put together. It's a great foundation. And it's all wrapped in. Yeah, it's not just, oh, there happened to be a cat on board and it evolved into this. Mm. Lister brought a cat on board and that's why he got put into stasis. That's his punishment. Yeah. And and there's even more to that, which we don't get in the series, which comes through from the novels. You know, they expand yes. on all that. What the hell is a hologram? Is that a sci-fi concept? Was that a familiar thing in 1988? Did it have to be explained? Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I guess it, you would have to explain it at the very least, wouldn't you? But let's let's go into our episode. And I mean, we've got to start with the opening credits, right? Right, sure. So the opening credits for the first two series, we start with uh, what is presumably Lister outside of the ship painting red paint on the exterior of the ship. We zoom out and we see that he's painting the, 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 the letters of Red Dwarf on this huge spaceship. We pan back even further, we see this huge spaceship. And it's a very familiar, you know, if you've ever watched the start of a Star Wars film and you see the big ship flying overhead, that's how it opens. It's kind of that same vibe. And you know what? I think it's not bad model work, really. It's the great. Ship looks, the ship looks great. There's no, there's nothing wrong with that at all. In fact, I will, I will, judging from interviews and things I've read, the model shots from series one is pretty much the only thing anyone's happy with about series one. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> In terms of that kind of came out how we wanted it. Although yeah, they had no great. intention to make it red. It was called Red Dwarf, named after a star, you know. Mm -hmm. the, the model makers painted it red. <laughs> the writers were like, oh, they've painted it red. It just looks like a big red block. <laughs> so that wasn't the intentional. <laughs> and that was that is Lister doing paint duty on, on the opening credits. It's actually Craig Charles oh, is in it? it, but you just can't tell because the visor's all fucked up. Sure. So. But it is but him. What's, what's interesting, let's talk about the music. So mm. the, the music in the opening credits is really portentous. It's like big strings yeah. and big slow movements. It's it's Again, it's kind of like the opening scene of a Star Wars film. It's like there's ominous, there is big things coming. The des description and in, in, in what they asked for was 2001-esque oh, style go. music. Okay. And that's what it is, you know. And ha that's Howard Goodall. That's a Howard Goodall um, bit. That all the incidental music is Howard Goodall. Again, Howard Goodall is someone we're going to have to focus on one day, but Red Dwarf has got enough going on. We need to, okay. <laughs> we're going to have to Fine. gloss over that slightly. But what, what about the... I mean, we, we can skip forward to the end credits then. So the end okay. credits, we have the same tune but it's played a lot more with a lot more jollity and a lot more upbeat so what's the thinking there then oh it's all over everything turned out okay 
Yeah, yeah, exactly. So the opening, like you say, it's portentous. It's it doesn't suggest comedy, and maybe it's, it's the idea is it suggests space and loneliness and kind of emptiness. Mm. But is that what you want to set up for a comedy? And bear in mind those opening credits, a minute long. Yeah, no, this is true. I noticed that as well because. Uh, you know, we we talked before about how credits these days, that's really, really quick and it's all over and you're into the action sharpish. Whereas, well, it was more than 60 seconds before we actually see anything happen. And it's not even like it's a very visually engaging minute <laughs> or, no. you, or they're showing it's people's names or anything. It's just, yeah. you know, part of the reason for that is they, if they're running 20 seconds over and they don't want to cut it out of the edit, they can chop that down a little bit, which... Mm. They do in uh, in one of the series two episode six, I think it is. is they they sort of do that. So, you know, that gives them the options for that. But yeah, it was just a different time. You wouldn't, you'd never yeah, dare you do that, that these days, would you? So yeah, the end credits, yes, is a lot more upbeat and has this weird song <laughs> that is that is very famous now. I guess. Mm-hmm. Do you know it? Can you sing it? Okay, hang on a second. Give me the <laughs> give me the first line. Get me started. Um, I want to fly. Shipwrecked and comatose, drinking fresh mango juice. Exactly. Which doesn't seem to make any sense whatsoever. Well, it's certainly a lot more jolly than the opening credits. But in terms of the actual lyrics, it's just like, what the hell are you talking about? But what I just read, actually, one of the few things... I've been doing research here and all and all this, but this is one of the few things that I've learned that I kind of didn't know already. It's very interesting. The idea is those lyrics are evoking Lister's dream of going living on Fiji and having a farm. Oh, it's tropical climates. It's, yes. uh, you know, drinking mango juice. And... Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that makes perfect sense now. And it, uh, just... just... <laughs> 30 short years after uh, I first heard it, it all makes sense. <laughs> but I don't think anybody else got it. And I think I think the problem with that is what happened is like Howard Goodall has obviously written that before the show has been made. So they've gone yeah. to him, look, it's about this guy who's lost in space, but he dreams of living on a farm in Fiji. He's like, okay, sure. what can I do with that? That's yeah. probably all he got told. You know? Yeah, yeah. That's great. So... Really it good. makes a bit more sense. Okay, well, let's go back to our episode. So with the exception of the first episode, after the opening credits, we get Holly appears on screen and we get an introduction, which is basically the introduction you just gave us to tell yeah. us who the characters are and uh, and the setup, which... I, do we need to do that every single episode for the first two series? I'm not sure. It's, it feels like a bit overdone. Well, that was definitely the worry that, like, what if someone hasn't seen the first episode? Like, yeah, I suppose. Sure I suppose if you if you on. didn't know, it wouldn't make sense. I get that. But then, but it feels like it feels fairly lazy. You know, we've talked before about setting up characters. Do you remember when we talked about the in betweeners? We talked about the episode where they're about to go on a field trip, and there's a conversation where each one of the four main cast has a has a line, mm. and we immediately know what each of those four guys is about. You know, that's how to do it. But instead, they have Norman Lovett on the on the screen just telling us. That's the, it's the backstory, though. And I think when we get into the first scene, we do establish those characters, those sure. two characters straight away. I think so it, I, I would argue, therefore, we don't need that. I, I think that is unnecessary. <laughs> so we get that. So, so what happens is we get the same intro every episode, but then there's an extra line. And, just a uh, gag, yeah. Yeah, this is a gag, and I, I sort of, I basically, I wrote these down because I thought, oh, I'll put these on the socials, you know, when we, uh, when we, when we launch this episode. They're not the highest caliber. They are not the highest caliber. <laughs> so this one, this one is actually interesting. So this is the intro from uh, from Holly. I'm gonna do the, I'm gonna do the impression here, but it okay, might be really yeah, bad. So don't you, you might those. just want to play Norman Lovett in here and cut me out. <laughs> 
In the three million years we've been away, it is my fond hope that mankind has abolished war, cured all disease, and got rid of those little Western saloon doors you get in trendy clothes shops. <laughs> I mean, that's, I mean that, that's, that sounds like a topical reference, but I, I don't remember that being a thing. Maybe I wasn't buying clothes in 1988. <laughs> But yeah, they are pretty weak. I, I'm, I tell you what I'm going to do. I promise our listeners, I will still put these all on social media because I've, I've written them all down. I'm going to do it, but, <laughs> but they're not great. It's not. I yeah. do, I, my point here is, I don't think this is a strong way to open an episode of a sitcom. Well, bear in mind as well. After you've done that, the first scene where you know it's Lister and Rimmer, one minute and forty-one seconds into the episode, mm. where we actually start the, the we see our characters. Yeah. Well, let's do that then. So I've uh, let's let's talk about the, the the opening scene. So we're in the drive room. Basically, Rimmer's doing an inventory of stuff. Lister just couldn't care less. But Rimmer's being absolutely relentless and won't let up. He's driving Lister insane. We learn here that um, Rimmer is he's holding and hiding and rationing the cigarettes for Lister, just as a means of keeping him in line. Yeah. Which I think, like I say, this this scene, it sets up those two characters immediately. You've got this yeah. officious, stuffy character and the slobby, kind of lazy Well, the last, the last line of this scene is Lister, as he walks out, goes, oh, I really, really hate you, Rimmer. <laughs> <That's okay. laughs> All right, we, we understand what's going on here. <laughs> that, that does it. That sums it up pretty well. <laughs> whilst, we're, whilst we're in the drive room here, let's talk about the sets and the props. Right, yes. Because certainly in the first series, they are not great. Yeah, so like I said, um, getting this commissioned in the first place was a bit of a bind. And once it was done, Grant and Naylor, who are the writers, Rob Grant and Doug Naylor, they were pretty hands-on, which was not the norm necessarily in those mm. days. Uh, but they they really wanted to make sure that it was done right. Um, so you got Paul Jackson, who's the producer, who's kind of, you know, he's the one who's doing all the shouting. And then Ed Bai, who's the director, uh, was kind of young, relatively young up-and-comer. Uh, he'd actually started out as a production manager on The Young Ones under Paul Jackson. Mm. And th- his first directing credit is on Girls on Top. Am I remembering that he is or was married to Ruby Wax? That's right. They got married, yeah. actually, between series one and two of Red Dwarf. They they got married. Oh, okay, there we go. But Filthy Rich and Cat Flap is where I remember him from. He, he directed that, didn't he? He directed all the film segments oh, of okay. Filthy Rich and Cat Flap, but not the studio stuff, I okay. think. Uh, uh, yeah, and he did Don't Miss Wax, which was Ruby Wax Vehicle, which mm. Norman Lovett was in uh, as yeah. a regular character the year before. Yeah. Uh, he went on to direct Bottom uh, and other stuff like that. And kind of like he was in that He's crowd, in that you world, know, he was yeah. in that, that Manchester crowd, I suppose. Yeah. He's relatively young and up and coming, which is good. That's the kind of thing you want for the show. But has he necessarily got the clout to throw himself around? And so with the writers as well, it, it became a bit of a... A mission of pick your battles you know you got to decide which mm. hills you want to to fight on and so that's why when they look at series one they're not really happy with it because there's so many things they just had to let go mm. and so part of that was they kind of they said okay we want this is the set we want think like a submarine style it's got it's not a fancy yes. glittery futuristic spaceship it's a mining ship it's dirty it's kind of yeah. gro- groovy it's the nostromo from alien yeah uh, that's exactly. what they're going yeah, for the, yeah. Yes, yes. And that's the sort of thing they were taking influence from. Dark Star was an influence on them. Mm. And then they, they kind of leave it to it. Like, oh, look, we've got professional set designers and builders. They're going to do a great job. Turn up on the day. It's like, oh, it's just a lot of wood painted gray. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. And so then, like, from then on, like, their entire mission is to get more color onto, onto the set, okay. which they managed to do in little bits, dribs and drabs. And we'll talk about series two and changes they made, but obviously that was we'll one of the major changes, just like 
put more colour in. Put sure, more the, the first, you know, the, the just, yeah, well, it's wood painted grey. Everything's just gunmetal grey and these sort of fake rivets. It sort of looks like they're having a meeting underneath the Humber Bridge at times. <laughs> yes. In the drive room there, on top of that, you've got, you've got these splashes of colour. They're not even, it's not even that they've put sort of cheap buttons in there with lights behind them. They've essentially got coloured card backlit. Mm. And, and yeah, if you look at it for more than a second, if you pause the video and, and, and take a look at what it is, it's all a little bit embarrassing. It's because it wasn't built in at all. It was just randomly thrown on on the it's day. It's just backlit, like going, oh God, backlit coloured paper. Here. That's all it is. <laughs> yeah. And then they're also, like, they're trying to do it relatively discreetly because they don't want to offend the set designer. who's <laughs> <laughs> doing everything. Yeah. <laughs> so, it's, you know, uh, it, it was this constant battle between all these elements. And there was so many... There's so many things here that were unknowns. You know, it's not like, oh, hey, we're doing a thing set in a hotel, build a hotel set. Oh, you know, it's a middle-class living room. Let's build mm. a, you know, give me my French windows. It's, it's, <laughs> it's, a, it's a new concept. And it's so, a 22nd so many century things... mining ship. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, go for it. And, and so without constant kind of vigilance and going, and, and you haven't got the time or the budget to just keep coming back or the, or the clout just to keep going, okay, change this, change this, change this. Which, you know, that basically that's what they did over the next six years. They kind yeah, of built it into yeah. something a bit more like what they and, and I guess that's why it changes so much every time. They've just got that mm. little bit more credibility, that probably that little bit more money, but, yeah. but more the credibility to be able to say, this is our vision, this is what we want. Yeah. Mm. And like I say, they'd spent the entire budget on the model shots and the scutters, uh, which didn't even work. So we'll come back <laughs> like to that's the where all the money had gone. Yeah, yeah, I like the scutters, but we'll come back to them. So we'll, 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 what we'll do is... We'll talk, we'll talk through this episode, and then we'll talk a little bit at the end about how it changed for Series 2. So, yeah, let's just to get back into the script a little bit, we've got Lister and, and Rimmer. And like we say, Lister is beholden to Rimmer for cigarettes. Mm. Like, what a disgraceful addict. <laughs> One yeah. cigarette a day. <laughs> yeah, well, he's a disgraceful addict. But also, we, we are seeing here that Rimmer is unscrupulous, to say the least. Yeah. You know, he's, uh, he's not very uh, ethical. He's not got any morals. But at what point would you just quit smoking? <laughs> yeah. I, I just let it I go. Mean, exactly. If you're on one a day and you're <laughs> enslaved as a result of it, then, you know, just knock it on the head. <laughs> so the next scene, we see Lister arriving on a little tricycle, which is a little motorized trike thing, which is that a prop that we see a lot? I, I, that felt like an not odd really. thing to have just for one scene. It was one of those things, what would they call Sinclair something? Sinclair C5. Yeah, yeah, it was one of those, but like stripped adapted. down. But the problem is, you know, the idea is he rides it around the corridors. Mm. The corridors are three meters long, mm-hmm. and and then you you cut and, and go from the other one, like you bring him around you the corner. Him he's coming. Down, yeah. They've only got one corridor. So yeah. they can't really let loose with this, <laughs> this, this uh, bike thing. But yeah, it's a nice little model. But there's a, there's a nice scene here. So there, he's in... Um, He's in the quarters. It's just Lister talking to Holly. And he, it basically, he's asking why Rimmer? Of all the crew members that you could have brought back, why Rimmer? So the, the, you know, the logic is, Holly says, it's because Rimmer is the one person on board who is most likely to keep you sane, to keep yeah. you, uh, you know, to keep you from going completely mad. Mm. I just don't buy that. I mean, he's the one character on the whole ship who could, who had the best sitcom potential. You know, yes. I understand why they brought him back for the purposes of the drama, but but there's no logic to that. I, I like it, though. I like it as a concept, uh, you know, as a psychological concept. You know, you're the last person on Earth. Like, mm. who's a good companion for you? Would it be your Do best Do you need mate? an antagonist? 
Because, yeah, if you're your best mate, you're just going to end up collapsing into your own kind of yeah. bad habits. Yeah. You need someone who's going to push you and keep you stimulated. Maybe. Perhaps someone who you hate isn't the best idea. But yeah. I like from Holly's point of view, and let's think if Holly is an AI, you know, perhaps he's not quite in tune with emotional reality. Mm. This is the person you lived with, you shared a room with, you, you shared the most amount yeah. of words with him than anyone else. Sure. You worked with him. Yeah, but I hated it. <laughs> like, yeah, you know, yeah, like, yeah. It's quantity, not quality, you know. There's a nice toilet joke as well. There's a nice bit of toilet humour where Lister says, oh, crap. And uh, the automatic toilet turns around, which again, really cheap prop, but a good gag, a good joke. <laughs> but the only time we ever see that are acknowledged toilets because I say, basically that's saying like, yeah, they've got a toilet in the room. That's good. But it's right in the middle of the room. Like, yeah, did you yeah. use that well, while right Rimmer's having a kid? Right next to Rimmer's pillow is where it is. <laughs> No wonder they hate each other. <laughs> so we we get a bit of Holly here. Uh, Holly, of course, the ship's computer, mm. who is a sort of disembodied face. And at this point in series one, still quite pixelated and computery. Yes, yes. Very, uh, very distorted image, certainly. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Why don't you tell me a little bit about Norman Lovett? Yeah, he was a stand-up, stand-up com- comedian. I think he started out doing music like he used to do an act with a guitar he would do kind of comedy songs and he was a support act for like punk bands in the late uh, late 70s i i remember him as a stand-up uh, mm. of, of you know of the time uh, as a and you know his act was very much hangdog he told those deadpan jokes that was his yeah that was his persona wasn't all very slow time. not particularly funny <laughs> it's kind of more funny in the sense <laughs> of i can't believe someone's actually standing up there and doing this went to a secondary modern school in clacton on sea I left that school with one O level, but they caught up with me and made me bring it back. Uh, uh, but yeah, he was a, so he's a stand-up in the eighties, and so he was turning up in all those things at that time. Like you know, he makes a brief appearance in an episode of The Young Ones. Uh, so Red Dwarf was definitely the thing he's, he's most well known for, and it was his breakthrough role. But it, it, it suited, his deadpan style suited this laconic computer, you know, this mm. kind of, this odd character. And in fact, the character of Holly was supposed to be a voiceover. It's just a, a ship's okay. computer. And it was only because Norman Lovett moaned and groused about it so much that <laughs> they put him in it. Like, it was not the intention at all, but he was like, come on, if I'm going to be on telly, let's get me on telly. Yeah, yeah. Like, look at my face. It's comedy. <laughs> well, I presume when they were writing this character, there is a lot of... 2001 and the HAL 9000 computer. Mm. You know, I, I, yeah. that, that feels like an influence on this character. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and there's an episode in the second series where, where Holly is replaced by the backup, Quee, yes. who's this, this American drill instructor sergeant type. Yeah. And that feels very much like HAL 9000. You know, that feels very much like I am going to work you to death in order to protect your lives. You yeah. Know? So uh, that, that feels very much like a, a, an influence from Kubrick. Yeah, I think so. And But then there's this idea that he's this computer, this AI, has been alone for three million mm. years. So not only is it sort of wear and tear, mm. but he's just been on his own with no contact yeah. with anyone. He's gone a bit mad. Yeah. <laughs> and it's just, yeah. which is why he's but just got the, this very but that's the premise of, of That's the premise of 2001, that the AI has... Has, has malfunctioned and they mm. talk about it well it's impossible to malfunction not, not no how unit has ever malfunctioned and yeah. and so so it's it is an interesting concept to think what happens to an ai 
is there such a thing as senility? Is there such a thing as yeah. degradation of intellect in, in artificial intelligence? And it's something they, they keep using all the, all, all the way mm. through, you know, they're not mm. quite as smart as he's supposed to be and all that. Well, that, that, that's, that, that episode I mentioned in series two where, where the, the Queeg, he's, mm. the, the premise for that episode is that Holly, he's so daft, he's gone balmy and he has to be replaced. Yeah. And it turns out that actually it's Holly playing a tra- practical joke on, on the crew. Mm. But but it's quite sad at the start where you think actually he's gone he's done you know he's lost his mind um, <laughs> and clearly he hasn't you know he knows what he's doing and he's playing this joke and so it's interesting throughout Red Dwarf how on the ball is Holly you know how how senile is he where, yeah where, does he go up and down who knows yeah and it's a it's a, it's a nice balance that kind mm. of because if you just have an all-knowing kind of perfect computer it's it's a bit too easy isn't it it kind of gives you too many answers uh, you need to you need to create problems yeah uh, but yeah so so norman lovett definitely falls into bit of a git territory oh, uh, really? very comfortably yeah yeah he's sort of i think he kind of openly acknowledges it you know he's a bit of a moaner and he's like he'll moan to get his way and, and all this sort of stuff uh, and so and, and part of that was he wanted to be on screen and so he just badgered yeah. them until they they changed him from a voiceover in, into a actual right. face to the point where the, they recorded the first episode and he was still a voiceover at that point <laughs> uh, even when they did that but then they had other problems with the first episode basically that it wasn't really funny um, so it wasn't funny enough, and so, like I say, they were they were really learning as they went along. So they filmed the first episode, and they went, "Oh, we need to put more gags in here. We need to do this. We need to do a bit more of this." And so mm. they reshot a lot of scenes of episode one because they had an extra filming block, and and so they reshot a load of stuff. And in doing so, they put Holly on on camera and they put him thinking about it holly's the first episode is called the end and that's Mm. where we have all the crew and we see what happens the events that lead up to the the death of everybody and so because there were a lot more actors and a lot more characters in it there there's certainly a lot less holly in that isn't there yeah anytime you see him that was a reshoot but there were just certain scenes they reshot like okay we'll just stick him on a monitor in the background so it Mm. works Mm. Uh, but then yeah when lister's walking around everybody's dead dave it's uh you know it's kind of okay that's the that's the joke yeah i get it so just going on with that bit of a git territory that's basically the reason norman lovett left the show so after series two he moved to edinburgh you know like i said they were rehearsing in london through the week going up to manchester for filming in the weekend and he was living in edinburgh so that was a pain you know it's one thing to be at home in the week and going up for the weekend but then like he would have to kind of block out several weeks living in a hotel you know and he didn't want to do it and he also kind of argued look all I do in rehearsals is sit there on a stool and read the lines like someone else can do mm. it. I'll just come in for filming. <laughs> and Paul, so Paul Jackson basically and Norman Lovett, both very stubborn and just butted heads. Right. And Paul Jackson was the one who had the power to wield the axe. To so, win, yeah. So yeah. Uh, and, you know, to the regret of most of the other creatives, you know, the other actors really liked Norman Lovett. Uh, the mm. writers really liked him. They, you know, I've heard them say, you know, if it was a few more years down the line, we would have had the, power to kind of come together and go hey let's all just sit down and work this out yeah but also it's kind of comes down to norman love it wasn't didn't want to put the work in and and you know it's like i say the writers are taking so much from the actors that to be able to hear him do it was important you know these days you just do it on the zoom but it'd be right so he was replaced by hattie herridge in series three then yes so hattie herridge appears the the last episode of series two is parallel universe where they go into a parallel universe and it's female versions of all the 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 crew 
And so we have a female version of Holly. She's called Hilly, mm-hmm. played by Hattie Herridge. And, and so they just decided to keep her on. Well, that concept was totally separate. You know, there was no intent sure. there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, they brought Hattie Herridge in because her stand-up material is quite deadpan and she'd been likened similar, to yeah. Norman Lovett. Mm. And so it was like, okay, well, let's get her in to be the female Holly. So then when Norman Lovett kicked up a bit of a fuss and they decide to get rid of him, who do you go to? You know, yeah. well, we've already established that uh, someone. Yeah. We'll talk about Hattie Herridge on a future podcast. Just to, I'll, I'll give you a bit of further information on Norman Lovett because although he did come back into the series a couple of times, you know, essentially this is Did his... he? So that must have been after I stopped watching it. You do mean much later? Series seven, he pops up and then series eight, when they, again, we'll go ahead here, but they revive the whole crew and including Holly. They oh, I didn't even know that happened. I, you see, I must have just lost touch with Red Dwarf at some point. There was a big hiatus, wasn't there? We'll, was, we'll talk yeah. about this. We'll talk about this. But that's a, something a, a we'll get to in the future. Sure. But yeah, so Norman came back into it for a, a series and then again sort of fell out with <laughs> Doug Naylor and uh-huh. moved, moved, went on his way again. I think uh, definitely um, his own... Bit of a gift. His attitude <laughs> doesn't play well with others necessarily and it get, might get him a certain way, but then sometimes it... <laughs> well, the school report might say very independent spirited. <laughs> yes. Mm. But of course, at this time, pretty much off the back of this being a bit more successful on this, um, he got a, a pilot for his own sitcom called I Love It. I Love It. Yes, I recall that. I don't recall anything about it, but I remember it being a thing. Tell me more about it. They did a pilot in 1989. They actually made a series of it in 93. And it's yeah. supposed to be him as a, he's a kind of a slightly wacky inventor and he has a dog that talks and it's a puppet. And, you know, I've seen a bit of the pilot and... I haven't uh, seen that. I would remember that. I mean, it's very Norman Lovett material. Like, it's mm. his style and his material. Whether that really works that well, it's just sort of gently surreal and very slow. Yeah. Yeah. Whether that really works that well, I don't know. Did one series. <laughs> that was it. Mm. And then he was in... Uh, he was a regular character in Asylum, which was made in 96, which was kind of a sitcom. It was an early project for Edgar Wright. Oh, okay. Uh, and Simon Pegg and Jessica Hines are in it. Uh, so that was where they kind of all worked together for the first time. And Julian Barrett's in it and other people like that. So, But it, it hmm. it's, it's almost like a vehicle for stand-up comedy. They would have guests on. They would just kind of do a lot of material. But it's, it's set in an asylum and Norman Lovett's the doctor that's in charge of it all it's a very weird show and you know i only did one series but it uh, like it's it's kind of better known now because of the lineage that came out of it you know Uh, and then just odd sitcom appearances over the years you know here and there and 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 his stand-up you know and now he's in his he's well into his 70s now i think he still uh, kind of works every now and then norman love it we will we will see a bit more of him in the future but you know in terms of his glory years of red dwarf yeah. establishing the holy character this this is it series one and two all right let's go back to our episode then so um lister sat in the bar on his own and this is i think this is quite a sad poignant scene we, we yeah definitely we, the scene is is bookended by lister sat on his own at the table sipping a drink and then we go straight into a flashback of him in the same room with all his friends la- you know music playing people dancing just a really really nice crowd scene and what's interesting here, what I think we should talk about here, are his mates who who play his mates. So one yeah. of them is one of them is Mark Williams, who is probably best known as Pa Weasley in the Harry Potter films, or, yeah. or perhaps on the Fast Show if you're the a fast show, sitcom. Yeah, yeah. But he's his character is called Peterson. 
he's but Danish, he's doing a Danish but... accent for <laughs> well, no yeah. reason. Uh, there is no. I guess the reason is that we're supposed to see people from all over the world, and it's an international crew. But it just it, it feels pretty crowbarred. No, the, the whole the, exactly that. The concept was this is an international ship, and they we're going to yeah. see people from all over the world. Unfortunately, that translates to white people doing British regional accents. <laughs> yes. Um, yes. So even in that first episode, we have McIntyre, who is the hologram. We have that character established. Uh-huh. He's Welsh. He was supposed to be Australian, but the actor hired... Well, no, he couldn't do the accent, so he did it oh, Welsh instead. So you're not telling me that was an Australian accent he was No, doing. no. <laughs> right, okay, fine. Thank God for that. Well, I would argue if you, had, if you have a character that's going to be Australian, hire an actor who can do an Australian accent. Yeah, yeah, sure. <laughs> he was as Australian as Shadwell. The, the the captain is American, Mac McDonald, who was an American yeah. actor who yeah, lived yeah. in Britain. And then you've got Peterson, who is supposed to be Danish. What accent mm. Mark Williams does from varies from word to word. I have been to Titan, I have been to Juno. I can name eight things that go in Juno. Pickers! I, I wrote down in my notes, why is he doing this stupid Swedish accent? And then I saw he had a Danish flag tattooed on his arm. I thought, oh, oh, I see. That's why. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it is a nice little who's who there, isn't it? You got Mark Williams. This was one of his earlier TV credits. Sure. I was just looking at Mark Williams earlier, actually. Mm-hmm. So his earliest TV credits is this, and, and uh, about the year before this, he was, he was a regular on Alexi Sales stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then it was, but it was the fast show in the mid 90s that kind of made him a bit more well known. Yeah, he was part of that group, wasn't he? Definitely. Yeah. Um, but, but he's like, he's, he's Oxford educated and, um, and was oh, really? at the RSC and stuff. Like, he says that the fast show kind of derailed his acting career and made him huh. a comedy actor, and he never really <laughs> intended that to happen. You know? So, well, look, I mean, the Harry Potter films are a good gig aren't they uh, you know he wasn't a major character but he was certainly a a, a recurring supporting character. He's in every film and he got good you know that i think well that'll be the first line of his obituary when he goes won't it it's a good gig isn't it? yeah mm. but but that's obviously it's him and julie walters isn't it they're obviously going sure. for it's not comedy characters as such but they're going for light-hearted in those yeah. in that family I absolutely mean, you bring in a comedy actor for that and everything he does he does that thing where he's a he's a vicar that solves crimes you know he's been doing that for years but that's kind of okay. light-hearted daytime we're not taking ourselves too seriously sort of stuff isn't it i've never i don't think i've ever seen him do something really kind of deeply dramatic no i don't think i have so what who are the others then who are his other friends there's there's the, the fella off of eastenders yeah paul bradley who i knew that's off it. of eastenders in the 90s that seems mm-hmm. what he most famous. But he was knocking about in, in that crowd in the 80s. He was he was in The Young Ones a few times. Yes, I remember seeing him in The Young Ones and thinking, oh, it's that fella off of EastEnders. He's an episode of uh, Bottom and stuff like that. And mm-hmm. I, when I looked him up, he, like, he went to University of Manchester and he's a couple of years older than uh, Rick Mayer, Adrian Edmondson. I, I wonder right, if okay. he was kind of in that Maybe sphere then. somehow. I'm not Maybe. sure. And then you've got David Gillespie as Selby, who I know pretty much entirely from Operation Good Guys, oh, okay. which is a late nineties semi-improv. Uh, that was a kind of Ray Burdis. And... Uh, d- d- what's it called? I want to. What's the mockumentary? That, that was a mockumentary, wasn't it? Yes, 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 yes. Yeah. That's right. Yes, yeah. which is a very interesting show. And I've got a bit of a soft spot for it. Might be something we could look at one day, but uh, yeah, perhaps. Uh, so yeah, that's what I know him for. He, but actually, he was at that time was in EastEnders. He was a regular mm. on EastEnders uh, in the in the late eighties. So so yeah, back to back to the back to the scene here, and we've got these four guys, and they're all having a drink, and they're all having a laugh. And to be fair to Rimmer, they are insufferable. Yeah, yeah. Like, can you imagine <laughs> having to share your life with these four morons? <laughs> 
But I think it's interesting that, obviously, Lister is the hero of Red Dwarf. He's the relatable mm. character. He's a bit of a slob, but we can, we, you know, he's the, he's the underdog. We all relate to him. But then when you see him in the flashbacks, you just think, oh, God, you're a bit of a knob, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's it. You know what, right? I, you remember I said earlier when the sketch character uh, wasn't uh-huh. quite the same? Yeah, and that that's those sketches were called Dave Holland's Space Cadet, and I think that gives mm. you more of a clue as to how that Space character Cadet. was envisioned. Yeah, he was a bit of a burnt out stoner, like that was the idea. Yeah, and the reason that changed, and this is what I was saying again about the writers working with the cast they had when Craig Charles came in and performed it in a different way and was much younger than they intended the character to be. You know, like by twenty years, you know, he's in mm. his early twenties. They worked with that. They liked it so much that they went, okay, well, how can we change this? And so they made him this kind of more of a slob rather than a stoner kind of vibe. It was a little bit different and they Mm. brought a bit more energy into it. And obviously that has ended up working really well. But for me, particularly in the first series, the whole slob thing feels really overdone. It feels caricatured. Mm. Like it's not just, oh, he's a bit messy. He doesn't really care what people think of him. Maybe his clothes yeah. aren't that good, whatever. It's like he's rubbing curry down his shirt and all that. Yeah. Like he'll spill yeah. his drink down and he doesn't care. It's it's mm. a sort of cartoon slobbiness and it, it never yeah. quite holds together for me. I'm like, I'm It feels like they... the sort of behavior that might be okay after several years on your own, but not... Yeah. That we're supposed to think that's his character mm. in the real world. There's a fine line with Lister where he's like, yeah, say he's just sort of messy and annoying. Uh, but then there's there's occasions when you get this glimpse of him actually being quite nasty, and then it never quite pans through. And I think that's very important. For example, there's an episode called Stasis Leak, and the opening scene is Rimmer complaining that Lister has basically spiked him with magic mushrooms and it made him do some very unusual things. And it's all kind of laughed off a little bit. And it's like, hmm, that's just just poisoning. That's that's just dangerous and a horrible thing to do. But then Mm. Lister says... Look, I didn't know it was a mistake. I like I, I'm not I'm not completely reckless and stupid, you know, and I be, and you believe him, you know. It's like yeah, yeah. Because Lister, and this is this is so crucial to Red Dwarf. Lister is such a good person. He is fundamentally moral. He will find the best yes. in everyone. Yes, I think you're absolutely right. That it would be a nightmare to live with in the sense that he's messy yeah. and careless and reckless. But it, there is not a, a bad bone in his body. He's yeah. yeah, yeah. I think you've hit the nail on the head there. Even when, so when Rimmer finds out his dad's dead, for example, he he's, he sits with him and talks with him and sort of says mm. like, you know, well, my mm. dad died, you know, I know how you feel. There's, like, even, like, this person that he really doesn't like and a nasty mm. person would kind of use that as an opportunity to mm. get back at them or whatever. Mm. And and this runs through the whole series. You know, Lister is just such a great guy. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and what I, a guy. <laughs> and, and it's a great juxtaposition to Rimmer as well. Yeah, because Rimmer is fundamentally the opposite. He, you know, no matter no matter how many opportunities he has to do the right thing, he's 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 amoral. He's got no morals at all. He's a weasel. He's a weasel. Yeah, he's a gimboid. But then even that, you have, and and this is down to good writing. You have to empathise with Rimmer sometimes. You have to feel bad for him. And you know, we've seen on on in our reviews before in our previous episodes how you can make a villainous mm. character really just nasty and it's not pleasant it's not fun to watch yeah. yeah so here we have a character and and again we've discussed this i think rimmer gets away with being such a weasel because he's largely impotent he doesn't mm. really have any power mm. what little power he has he has to grab hold of and mm. desperately guard and jealously yeah. uh, w- wield and it and it's pathetic is there some is there something so we recently talked about alf garnet 
and how that didn't work. That's possibly because he's a, in the same way he's immoral and not immoral, wrong word, but he's, you know, he's a nasty presence. But he has power over that household. He's not as in yeah. charge as he would like to be, but he's more in charge than Rimmer is, which is, as you say, impotent. You know, and yeah. Alf Garnet has moments of impotence, but but ultimately isn't. Yeah, and that was we said that's where the balance wasn't quite right. Yeah, and Rimmer is so far down the crew. There is only one person on the crew who is lower ranked than him, and that's Lister. Yeah. And so that's the only power he has. And it's also a power that Lister, Lister does not refuses respect to let him in have any it. way whatsoever. Yeah. <laughs> like he doesn't yeah. care. Yeah. Uh, but we see because Lister knows that Rimmer respects that power, he's gonna become mm-hmm. an officer and and become mm-hmm. his uh, his superior, and that's the way he's gonna be him. And it's a great yeah. uh, a great way to um, to use his character against him. Yeah, that's the plot of this episode. So so back to our scene in the bar. There, mm. did you so notice we... in the bar? The, there's a big mm. poster up in the background saying Nostalgia Night, 90s Night. <laughs> no, I didn't. It's supposed didn't to be a 90s that. theme, <laughs> Nostalgia uh, Night. Excellent. Which I guess is just like, that's why they're all wearing Hawaiian shirts. I guess. <laughs> that's, what they, that's what they predicted was going to be the 90s fashion. <laughs> <laughs> But but so so at the end of that scene, we then the the crowd fade away and we're left as we were at the start of the scene with Lister just sipping his drink, and it's mm. it's a really heartbreaking moment. It's yeah. really great pathos. Mm. There's there's the, the scene that we we sort of mentioned earlier in the opening episode where Lister has woken up and Holly's trying to patiently explain what's happened. They're dead, Dave. They're all dead, Dave. And it takes him ages to get it, and that's that's the joke. What I thought was here we are two episodes later and. I think he's just getting it. They're all yeah. dead, Dave. Yeah. It was it was really just just this moment which they could have just had a flashback. They didn't need that little um that little bookend at the start and end of the yeah, scene, but really they put nice it in moment. there and it worked really well. In those first couple of series they bring pathos into it, you know, Lister mm. uh, Rimmer's mm. backstory with his dad and stuff like that. And they have these moments and we kind of largely lose that in the later series just because they were kind of a bit more settled in what they were doing. It's post-traumatic shock, shock, isn't it? You know, like there's limited to how much comedy you can wring out of that. But (laughs) yeah, everyone's dead, Dave. Mm. That's got to take some coming to terms with. Yeah, ultimately what this show is about is the last human being alive. Mm. And all he wants to do is go back to Earth, even though he knows it's not going to be what it was. You know, the human race is probably at best moved on <laughs> if not extinct yeah yeah so while we're here with lister on his own mm. uh let's talk about craig charles let's so craig charles basically red dwarf was the first acting he ever did mm. wasn't an actor um he was a poet he was a performance poet wasn't he so so we've talked before about that stand-up world of the 80s and you sort of got a lot more of those variety type acts um and and part of that was poets you know beat poets that was a that was part of that scene mm. That's yeah. not the biggest part, but he was certainly stand-up comedy adjacent. Yeah, I mean, he was on Saturday Night Live, mm. whatever that show was actually called, Saturday Live. Saturday Live, it was called, yeah. Which was a Paul Jackson production, by the way. He was, yeah, in that kind of world of alternative comedy. His poems were often very political and hard-hitting and like a voice of the youth kind of thing, but also funny. Perhaps not stand-up material, but, you know, funny enough to, to be in that world. He runs his fingers through his hair and struts and pouts without a care. Green and yellow laser beams go flashing up and down his jeans. He knows how to bebop. He knows how to reel and rock. But he's got what a robot's got, cos he can make his body pop. Jason looking neat and sharp. Jason dancing in the dark. The computer churning out the sound to all the people on the ground. 
because computers make the whale go round. It's really interesting that the idea of performance poetry that you can you can sort of if you have a certain cadence and rhythm to your speech. You can get away with the old crap, can't you? <laughs> I really like. I want to mention this actually because <laughs> it's not my. Listen, it's not my thing. I, I don't like performing. <laughs> I'm generalizing hugely, but I'm yeah. I do. I do like it. And you listen to Craig Charles' poetry, and it's it's great. Like because he's a teenager. You know, you see him. He's on like Wogan and Pebble Mill and stuff like that, and he's a teenager. Uh, but obviously, he's like he's you know he's a scouser. He's working class. He's mixed race. He's bringing all these elements into it, and it's mm. kind of like you know it's like Pebble Mill. Going, oh look, we've got the young, the voice of the youth here. Yeah. Look at that. But it, it, it's it's really fascinating, and I I like his style, and he really brings that to Lister. There's there's quite a few bits with Lister uh, where it just sounds like him doing a poem. There's one specific bit. Um, you know, he thinks he's getting married to Kachansky, and uh, he goes to they go to the hotel to to find her in Stasis Leak, and he he sort of thinks he's you know he's been screwed over again, and uh, he does a little monologue about. Uh, men who go to wine bars. <laughs> what do yeah, you want on your cornflakes, yeah, yeah. Dallow? Have some wine, please. Yes. Why do women always leave me for total smegheads? <laughs> Why do they dump me for men who wear turtleneck sweaters and smoke a pipe? I mean, natural yogurt eaters. <laughs> Reliable, sensible, dependable. And lots of other words that end in ibble. <laughs> but he's obsessed with house prices and spends half his life in antique fairs looking for bargains and drinking wine. It's never beer, is it? It's always wine. That just sounds like him doing his poetry, you know. It's it's it just sounds like a, a, a poem. So I, I really like that vocal styling. Can I give you an example of that from this very episode, which yeah. is where he's talking about he's talking about Rimmer and asking Holly, like we said earlier, about why 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 <laughs> Rimmer? Exactly what you're going he said through. he said Herman Gurman would have been more of a laugh than Rimmer. I mean, okay, he was a drug crazed transvestite, but at least we could have gone dancing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was the way he says it. At least we could have gone. Dancing, <laughs> very much, very much that performance poet um, cadence. Yes, yes, that's a really good uh, observation. And you know, he he wasn't an actor, but he is a performer, and so I think that's what he brings to it. And and like I said, the writers kind of maneuvered the character to fit him more and more so as they went along and got to yes. know the actors a bit better. And let, let's face it here, we our four main cast here. We've got a stand up an impressionist, a poet, and a dancer. Yeah. None of them are actors. Yeah. <laughs> I think that shows, you know, I, you can't watch Red Dwarf and go, oh, the acting mm. is brilliant. Mm -hmm. But they work it to them. Like that, the solution is to make it work, make your characters work to the actors and let them bring yeah. so much into it. Yeah. The fact that so many, like they haven't gone on to do so much more well-known acting, even Robert Llewellyn, you know, he's not particularly, mm. he's not famous as an actor, is he? He's famous as Crichton no. and presenter, basically. Yeah. And he was a stand-up comedian as well. Yeah, he did a bit of comedy and all that stuff. We'll get to him, we'll get to him but that's a later. That's but a but you're right, you're right, you're right that they are not casting actors. In some ways, I think that's gives Red Dwarf its its particular feel, its vibe, it's it's this kind of raw energy, particularly the early stage. I mean, you can, you watch the first five series, you watch Danny John Jules learning how to act as he goes yeah. along. And obviously yeah. there's an upper limit there. But Craig Charles, you know, he really embodies that role. Mm -hmm. And they built that into it. So Craig Charles, during the filming of all of this, they were staying in a hotel in Manchester. So him and Danny John Jules, being young guys, would just go out yeah. and get smashed and then turn yeah. up for filming hungover. 
And Chris Barry was annoyed because he was a professional mm-hmm. and he was taking it seriously. And uh-huh. so that bit, and like they, they didn't get on, you know, Chris Barry and, and Craig Charles yeah. did not get on in those first years, early years, right. because of this kind of professional conflict, I think. And they were just totally different people. I think that stands out about Craig Charles or about Lister. He is a really charming guy. Yes. And, and like I was saying earlier about how when he's with his mates, you just think, oh, God, what a nightmare. But he's got charm. He's got charm. He's the sort of guy you would want to hang around with. Yeah, I know what you're saying there. I think that that comes into the character. You, you, Even if Lister is a slob and you see him with his mates and you think he'd be a bit of a knob, but you think, yeah, he'd be a nice guy to hang around with. Like, you could get on with him, I'm sure. You know, where you wouldn't want to hang out with Rimmer. Tell you about his risk stories. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that's all we have time for this week. And it's been a long one, and you've got another long one coming up next time as we will continue our journey with the Red Dwarf Boys. So do come back and join us for that. In the meantime, please do check out our social media. We are at BritcomPod on Twitter and Instagram. And do look at our YouTube page, British Sitcom History, where you get video versions of the podcasts as well as other content. Thank you very much for listening, and we will see you next time.